to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. There are a lot of things about the Civil War that we all think we know, until someone asks the fundamental historical question, how do we know that? When that happens, we sometimes find that every secondary source citation just leads to another one, and that we've all been echoing each other, until someone finally digs down into the primary source evidence to see what really happened. That's what Carol Reardon has done with Swiss military theorist Antoine-Henri Jomini, whose writings we have all been told were so influential in the way West Point-trained officers conducted the Civil War. We'll find out the real story from Professor Reardon, author of With the Sword in One Hand and Jomini in the Other, The Problem of Military Thought in the Civil War North. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the state of North Carolina or the city of Greenville, the university that is East Carolina University, or anybody else, just myself. And likewise, our guest tonight will speak only for herself, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. It is the first Wednesday of March, 2017. It's the last show before spring break, the two most beautiful words in the English language. We'll say more about the schedule in a moment. It's the year of liking extensively, the year of 1,000 likes. Everyone uh, from national leadership on down has agreed that this is the year 
that Impediments of War page on Facebook will receive 1,000 likes, and we're up to 821 right now. So be sure to get all your friends to like the page. If you're listening on SBB Radio in Claxton, Tennessee, or East Oak Ridge, South Clinton, or North Powell, be sure to turn on your computer as well as your radio and like the Facebook page. It won't do any good. It's just something we're trying to accomplish. Well, one of the things that I've frequently tried to accomplish in Civil War talk radio is to remind you, the listeners, of my Harvard education in order to recoup some of the value of the tuition dollar paid there. And I haven't done that in quite a while, but this week I found out, uh, well, I didn't find out, I asked uh, uh, earnestly if I could be the Harvard University delegate to the ceremony at which our new chancellor at East Carolina University will be installed in a month or so. We did this 10 years ago with the previous chancellor. It's uh, a big ceremony all over campus. There's a procession of faculty across the mall, the the central leafy part of campus. Everybody has one. It's the Diag at Michigan, Harvard Yard, if you go there. Uh, All the faculty parade across in their regalia. And I'm trying to depreciate the cost of my cap and gown by wearing as often as possible without actually becoming an eccentric who wears it outside of ceremonies. So I uh, learned that when we do this procession, each representative of all the other universities in the country who are all invited gets to march in the procession. But of course, most other universities don't bother to send anyone to the installation of the chancellor at ECU. It just they're busy. They've got things to do. And I was pretty sure uh, that uh, Drew Faust was not going to fly down from Cambridge for this event. So uh, what what the university here does is they solicit faculty to serve as delegates for their uh, for the schools where they got their doctoral degrees. And so I wrote to Harvard's office, appropriate ceremonial office, and they said, can I be the institutional delegate? They said, sure. Delighted to have you. Uh, so I get to march in the the uh, ceremony, and what's good about this is we march in order of seniority of the age of the institution, and that means Harvard is at the front of the line. So I get to wear what my uh, wife refers to as my pink dress, my my bright, well, pink is the only color you can call it, bright pink gown, because all the universities in the country agreed on a code for academic regalia some hundred years ago. It would be black, it would have this trim, it would have that. They all agreed except Harvard, which said, we like pink, we're going our way, and we're Harvard, so we don't have to listen to the rest of you. So I will stand out at the front of the line in my ridiculous colors ahead of everybody else. I, It's my favorite time of the year. Well, I'll tell you more about that as it happens. Uh, One more quick news item before getting to our our guest tonight. An experience on the internet uh, that I had this week using the uh, H-Net listserv for Civil War Studies, H-CivWar. It's a listserv. People can share messages and communicate with each other, sort of like a bulletin board. Uh, But it's for professionals in the field, professional academics or others with a uh, some kind of professional connection. So unlike other Civil War talk sites on on the internet where people can 
express their opinions freely. This is just for people who do this for a living. And as a result, uh, it means you have to be approved to be a member, have to show you have some institutional affiliation or publications or some, some credential. And once you're in, people use their real names. They write in whole sentences. They use correct uh, punctuation and grammar. They don't use all caps. And in fact, they don't use it very much at all. Uh, just an occasional announcement of a conference or something like that. But this week, somebody did post an inquiry about whether uh, conscription in the North was applied to African Americans during the war. And a substantial discussion broke out. People like uh, James Oakes, Martin Johnson are contributing messages back and forth. And every message was filled with careful definitions of the argument. Are we talking about informal impressment or formal enrollment and conscription? Is it the 1863 uh, Enrollment Act or the 1862 Militia Act? What what exactly are we doing? Everybody was citing primary source evidence. I learned about General Order 329 of October 1863, which authorized enrollment of African Americans in the border states, something I'd never heard about before. And everybody wrote with professional modesty and reserve and courtesy, and we all came out knowing a lot more than when it started. I didn't write anything. I just read it. And I thought, this is this internet thing could really catch on. People writing thoughtful, well-reasoned, courteous messages filled with references to primary source evidence. Um, this, is, this, this ought to be done more often. And then I woke up, uh, I mean, this really happened, this was not a dream, but uh, then I went back to the regular internet and all bets were off. Uh, well, there is one other good thing on the on the internet, and that, of course, is impedimentsofwar.org, where you can learn about who's going to be on the show. Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date, and he is promising some changes, some improvements suggested by a listener, for which we are grateful among other things, fixing the Amazon links. Uh, Amazon changed their links and messed everything up. So when you click on a book from an older episode, you may not be taken right to Amazon. We're working on fixing those one by one. In the meantime, if you get into Amazon from any working link on the site, that does help get us a pass-through, click-through penny or two that benefits uh, the show. So please consider doing that. Uh, while you're there, you can find out who's going to be on. Nobody next week. March 8th will be spring break. I will be kicking back and reviewing rubrics for graduate thesis proposals. March 15th, though, we'll be back here. Andrew Bledsoe and his book, Citizen Officers, Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps in the Civil War. No show again on the 22nd. That is National History Day, or rather the next day is National History Day. So, uh support your local school or other institution that is sponsoring it and uh, volunteer to be a judge if they're looking for that or help out in some way. Uh, I will be judging uh, locally here. March 29th, James Conroy comes back to the show. He has a new book, Lincoln's White House, a co-winner of the Lincoln Prize this year. April 5th, Scott Hopkins will tell us about Civil War Tokens. You'll learn what they are. I'll learn what they are. It should be interesting. April 12th, another listener's suggestion, Dennis Fry. Uh, many of you know who he is, have, have heard him. If you've ever been to Harper's Ferry, where he works with the National Park Service, you may well have encountered him. Uh, we'll talk about his book, September Suspense, 
about the 1862 campaign. And finally, uh, for now, uh, April 19th, Judy Giesberg has a new book on a topic that will interest very few people. It's called Sex and the Civil War, Soldiers, Pornography, and the Making of American Morality. We'll find out what that's about. So lots coming up on Civil War Talk Radio. Go to Impediments of War, click on the PayPal button, donate to the book fund. Don't deduct it on your taxes because it's not really a charity. It's just a, a money grab on my part, and uh, you can't, can't write it off. Let's move on and talk to our guest tonight. She is the George Winfrey Professor of American History at Penn State University. Uh, author of various works, uh, notably Pickett's Charge and History and Memory back in 1997. But tonight we're talking about her more recent book on Jomini and uh, military theory in the Civil War. Uh, our guest, Carol Reardon. Professor Reardon, are you there? I sure am. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, it, it is very good to have you. I think you and I first talked about doing this at... I think the Society of Civil War Historians meeting in Richmond, I don't know, four, eight years ago. It seems like a long time ago. Uh, and and I remember at the time you were working on a, the, the Gettysburg book with Tom Vossler, and you said, get him on first. So I did that. And uh, I'm just delighted that, that we've managed to work it out to have you here tonight. Well, I'm glad to be here. It was tough to get our schedules to work out. <laughs> but but all, all has come, come around appropriately. But we're here. Let's do it. Now, you mentioned in, in one of the emails as we were going back and forth that you are uh, retiring after this year. Is that correct? I am. As of uh, June 30th, uh, I will be officially retired from Penn State, but only when it comes to day-to-day, full-time teaching and that sort of thing. I will have emeritus status. I will be still connected to the university uh, to help with a variety of things connected with the Richards uh, Civil War Era Center. Uh, the university wants me to put my military history course online. Um, I do a number of leadership programs for various elements of not just Penn State, but for all kinds of different groups, and I lead a lot of military staff rides. So it's not like I'm completely fading away. Uh, I'm, well, just, I'm just uh, shifting gears and turning the page to a new chapter. Uh, it's, and no more committee meetings, presumably. Well, you know, that I, I would say that that was uh, a good thing, <laughs> except uh, just today, just before I picked up the phone here, I came back from two committees, committee meetings with the Gettysburg Foundation. So oh, that's uh, different, different, different committees, but still meetings. <laughs> it well, doesn't end, really. I, I guess not. Let me... Go back to the other end of your career, then ask what got you interested in uh, military history and the Civil War? I've been interested in military history since as early as second grade. Uh, my father was uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Army. He was an old World War II vet. And I, I don't know of any single thing that got me interested, except I knew that by second grade uh, I was fascinated by Gettysburg and Despite all the changes that you go through through your life, I never was able to shake that. My bachelor's degree is in biology. I'm not retiring as a biology professor. <laughs> I always came back to apparently my first love. It just took me longer than others to figure out what that was. 
Well, I guess that's not an unusual thing among uh, both guests on the show and listeners to the show that, that we, we find this passion at some point and then stay with it. But often there are a lot of twists and turns in the meantime. Well, uh, I lead the only bird-watching Civil War battlefield tour out there that I'm aware of. That ties in the biology degree then. Oh, sure. There we go. Yeah, did you, have um, you ever stopped a group of, of Marine Corps majors on near Devil's Den because of a, a barred owl hooting up on Big Round Top? I have. Why not? I, I have never done that. Why not do it? What a good good thing to do. Uh, we're almost to our first break, which we'll take shortly. Let me ask a quick question as we talk about uh, this book uh, with a sword in one hand and Jomini in the other. This is a uh, was originally prepared, I believe, as a series of lectures, the the Stephen Janus Bros lectures in the Civil War era. Say a word about uh, how do you, uh, about that series or about your your participation in it. Well, Stephen Janus Bros are two of the uh, generous donors who make the Richard Civil War era center at uh, Penn State. Uh, into the wonderful operation that it has become. Uh, the center does everything from uh, programs like the Bros Lectures to uh, supporting graduate education to uh, all kinds of cross-discipline seminars, uh, training for scholars from undergraduate through postgraduate, a variety of different things. A lot of that kind of thing doesn't happen without the support of uh, generous and very engaged donors like the Broses are. Uh, I was asked to give these three lectures. It was it's one of a series, and um, primarily because we went through a period where we had we covered social history and religious history and political history, and then somebody said, uh, "Isn't there any war in the Civil War era center?" And well, that just sort of led them back to me to say, "Okay, get in there with some guns and and talk about that." And, and that's basically uh, the beginning from that point on. But then they let me decide the topic and the parameters of what I was going to do. And it was a little bit like being let loose in the candy store. When well, the, you know, I'm, I'm going to just the, step in. We're going to take a quick break here and jump into that candy store with you as soon as we get back. We're talking tonight with Carol Reardon, author of With a Sword in One Hand and Jomini in the Other. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. 
the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Carol Reardon, author of With a Sword in One Hand and Jaminy in the Other. We ended the first segment talking about how this topic was chosen how it brings military history back to an important Civil War lecture series. We do a wide range of eclectic uh, topics, as, as you, listeners, as you know, on this show, but it's always good to get back to military history, uh, without which, of course, there's there's no war at all. So, uh, Carol, tell me, what, what brought you to, uh, what, with the candy store in front of you, any military topic? Why uh, Jaminy and military theory? I've always had an interest in the intersection of military history and intellectual history, the power of ideas to uh, shape and form uh, human actions is something that very much interested me. Uh, When I first started studying military history, I was mostly studying under the direction of European historians who introduced me to the world of Napoleon and those who wrote about his campaigns. And it was the work of Jomini and uh, others who uh, the Civil War generation would draw upon ultimately when it came time for the Union and, and the Confederacy to figure out how to fight a war on the scale and the scope that the Civil War became. Uh, nobody had any clue how big a challenge they were confronting, and they really didn't have a whole lot of American historical experience to draw upon, so sometimes they had to turn to the books to see how the master did it, and the master was Napoleon, and there were plenty of Europeans especially who had ideas on uh, the secrets that made him so successful, but as we so often find... Uh, when three or four different people look at a, 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 a significant individual like Napoleon, they can draw away different reasons, different lessons from uh, what they observe. And so there was a very vibrant body of European military literature out there that reached some uh, a, a wide spectrum of conclusions. And uh, I got into that before I really got into Jomini's application to the Civil War. I was simply looking at it as a set of ideas. Uh, the fun came for me when it was time to apply them to a specific American context about which Jomini and most of the others who wrote about Napoleon had no clue whatsoever. Well, that one of the points you make is there was skepticism in the United States about how applicable European military theory would be at all. But what I found really compelling at, at the beginning of your book was your your historiographical discussion of how we who read about the Civil War get the idea that Jomini was, was this dominant influence. Everybody, every officer had read him. They, as your title says, they go to war with a sword in one hand and a book in the other. Uh, but I, I was I, When I first got started, and I suspect the same as for you, we read the, the same books that came 
you know, T. Harry Williams and folks mm-hmm. like that who pointed to Jomini and said, he's the man. And right. I didn't really have a reason to, to doubt that or question that. Uh, I probably wouldn't have except for the wonder of the Internet that you were talking about earlier. Definitely. When I went out uh, one time for an unrelated project, and I was looking for some comments that um, northern newspaper editors, um, whenever they would refer to Jomini, what, what did they have to say about him? I'd put Jomini into a search engine, and up would come all these articles. And I'm thinking, great, this is going to be so easy now that I can just uh, do a quick search, and now all of a sudden there it was. But one of the first things I noticed when I read the articles was Jomini might be cited as the uh, the source for one idea being for, put, put forward by an author, but then a second idea would pop up and a whole different military theorist would be named as the source for that idea, and a third idea with a completely different uh, person as the source for that. And what became fairly obvious to me in uh, pretty, pretty quickly was that uh, Jomini certainly is a player whenever we talk about uh, military theory in the Civil War, but he's not the only one, and maybe not even the most influential one. Uh, it makes me wonder, how did we start off thinking that Jomini was the one? Because clearly once you get into it, you find out that it's a lot more complicated than that. That intrigued me, so I had to keep following that. Well, you mentioned uh, David Herbert Donald, who who was my mentor uh, in grad school, uh, as one of the people, along with T. Harry Williams, who at least addressed this issue, uh, you know, fifty or sixty years ago. Uh, so, so how did we get this idea that Germany was 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 the guy? Well, I, I think before Donald and before T. Harry Williams, we just simply looked at it as um, we learned by, we learned through the school of hard knocks. We learned. Uh, through experience, we learned um, because we found the right the right men at the right time. The Civil War had a con- used a, a phrase a lot, a word a lot, and that word was genius. Uh, the person that an awful lot of folks were looking for was the military genius who was going to step forward and lead the Union Army or the Confederate Army to great victory. And the Civil War generation debated for quite some time about just what a military genius was. And the general agreement was it didn't have to be somebody who went to a military school. In fact, intellect wasn't the key measure here. Genius was something that was interdirected. It came from sort of an inner spirit, an inner eye that could look at a problem, intuitively understand it, could figure out a solution, and could just do it. Uh, so they'd look back and they'd say, you know, George Washington didn't go to West Point or any military school, but he was the military founding father. Andrew Jackson, same thing, did not go to any kind of military school, but hero of the War of 1812. Zachary Taylor, um, same thing during the Mexican War. And there were plenty of folks at the dawn of the Civil War who said, you know, uh, where's our genius? We need another genius. Who's it going to be? So they didn't automatically look at the professional soldiers. They were willing to look at the political generals, the uh, generals who were uh, appointed because they represented a a, a specific political or ethnic constituency, uh, something other than somebody with military smarts. But there was always this flip side saying, no, uh, you don't want the untrained genius because their very unpredictability makes them dangerous. 
You want somebody who has thought about war, who understands its complexity, somebody who has a, a founding in basic principles that are the that that or can sort of contain the wisdom of the of the ages. Uh, you want somebody who has a theoretical framework for the conduct of war, and and that's and it's people in that school of thought who turn to folks like Jomini and um, some others at that time as uh, potentially providing an answer for it. Basically, most Civil War soldiers knew very little about Jomini, even if they had gone to West Point, because Jomini was not considered the preeminent soldier or theorist of the age back at the Civil War. It, it's something that I think, uh, well... Your mentor and my mentors uh, developed to, to try to answer the question, okay, if, if not a genius, who is sort of the representative of the theoretical school of thought? And Jomini was the answer they came up with. It's really interesting, especially knowing you, the book is copyright 2012. It's not written in the contemporary environment, but the the political and cultural contest between those who call for a, a genius, a natural, untutored genius to lead the nation's military um, compared to those who are also contained elements of populism, of anti-elitism, of opposition to West Point as a, a, a bad use of taxpayer dollars to train elite people uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, a faith in, in education, in training and knowledge. Uh, just As I'm reading this, I'm, I'm, you know, on the other, you can look at the headlines and there's a leader who says, I know more than all the generals, uh, that, that we still have this political dimension to arguing uh, is which is more important, native uh, instinct or, or professional training. So oh, I, I, think that, I, think those, uh, I think that intellectual conflict is still quite alive and well. Uh, and definitely. And in the war context, then uh, this plays out. Uh, you, you show a number of figures uh, – McClellan, uh, Meade, Rosecrans, Grant, Sherman. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about how, how some of these people fit on the, the genius versus intellect scale. Well, pretty much, if you went to West Point, at least the way Civil War folks would talk about it, if you went to West Point, that automatically meant you were not a genius. In fact, <laughs> you, you, the, your genius had probably been repressed. Your genius had probably been snuffed out by the... Uh, very conservative and very rigid thinking imposed upon you at West Point. Uh, one of the things that made you a genius was coming up with the unconventional, uh, unpredictable uh, reaction or resolution to a question that was in front of you. Um, so that's why an awful lot of folks like to point at someone like, oh, um, try to come up with somebody here. Uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Mm-hmm. We, we, if you if, if you can think back to the Ken Burns series when Shelby Foote was asked about the geniuses, of, you know, did the war produce any geniuses? And he said Abraham Lincoln and and um, Nathan Bedford Forrest. And you know, in their own context, uh, there was something to that. But he was using a 19th century uh, context when he came up with that comment. Probably not the way that we look at it today. Um, when when me, I was go ahead go, go ahead Jerry oh just uh, something else that that really uh, struck me that in terms of learning new things from this book 
you talk about how, how Jomini was one among many. There were also a lot of American writers on the theory of war during the war uh, who uh, I was unfamiliar with, uh, De Peister or Schalk or these other people who who not only wrote, but people bought their books, people read their articles. They, that was actually one of the most fascinating parts uh, for me doing this project. Um, I had never even heard of, of Schalk before I started uh, working on on, on this enough. project. <laughs> uh, he, he was, he, I just kind of backed into him at one point, pretty much the same way as, as I kept putting Jomini in all kinds of uh, search engines and coming up with him. It seemed that half the time I'd be finding him, I'd also be finding uh, the name of um, Emil Schalk. And I, I had to ask, who is he and what's he all about? And um, found out that he, he's one of the great mystery people of the uh, Civil War. He appears to have been uh, raised in, and educated in Europe and then came to the United States. He may have been a soldier. He may have been a chemist. He may have been something else entirely. Apparently, he was uh, only in his 20s. But not only was he able to write books about military theory and get them published, uh, but he managed to get them into the hands of some uh, some individuals. There's, he got a copy of one of his books into the hands of General Sherman. Don't know if Sherman read it, but certainly he, he could get his work circulated. But I think one of the reasons why uh, there, would, there would be a great burst of interest in not just Americans writing about war, but the, re- the translation and reprinting of European studies about mm-hmm. the art of war was just... We had so little to grasp, so little to rely upon uh, in 1861 when the war began. Uh, when, the, when Fort Sumter was, was um, bombarded, all of a sudden everybody's trying to figure out not just how to raise an army or how to fight a battle, but a much bigger question, how to fight and win a war. And nobody had really thought about just how much that takes. Um, Today, you walk into, say, the, one of the war colleges, and they talk about the importance of understanding the interrelationships between the government, the people, the military, uh, the economy, and how they all work together. They talk about the elements of national power, and they talk about how you, have, you, you draw on all those elements to develop a strategy that, that uh, meets certain goals and that that's how you decide how you're going to fight in your in your various conflicts the civil war had no structure like that at all and so one of the things that they're going to do is to sit down and uh, argue about the best way to develop a strategy to win the war I, one of my favorite parts of the uh, early on was discovering that the word was so new the word strategy was so new that when newspaper editors and newspaper journalists were writing about it, they did not know what the, uh, what the, what the agitable form of strategy was. Was it strategic? Was it strategical? Or in one case, the guy added a syllable and it became strategetical. <laughs> and so what was it? Now, the one thing I did not find was strategery. Right. Any fans of Saturday Night Live would get that, but um, it was that's how new that word was. So strategy, strategy and tactics uh, were used interchangeably as as, mm-hmm. as words. A lot of people never made distinctions between the two. Sometimes Civil War historians still have that problem today. Um, 
it, we were really starting at square one, which made the uh, field wide open for people who had an intellectual foundation and people who just had wild-eyed guesses that they wanted to throw out there for some, some kind of consideration and were able to do so. You mentioned not having a, a foundation. Of course, a, a lot of officers did go to West Point. Uh, they, they would have studied under Dennis Hart Mahan. Mm-hmm. They would have read his book. Uh, they might have read uh, uh, Halleck's book, possibly, on, on international law. Well, they never read Halleck's book. Uh, that, that was another bit of a surprise. We're used to hearing about Halleck as old brains. Right. And he wrote that, uh, Elements of Military Art and Science. And, and one of the things that I discovered was he never wrote that as a textbook. That was not the intention. Uh, he actually gave a series of public lectures when he was a, uh, a young captain stationed up around Boston. And somebody was so intrigued by these lectures, they asked him to write them up. And that is the foundation of the book. Uh, he did not write it at the request of the War Department. He did not write it for use in, a, in the classrooms at West Point. He accepted all the financial risk to have it published. It was never formally approved or adopted, but it, it was. we hear about it so much because it was one of the very few books out there that addressed topics uh, beyond um, simple tactics that talked about war as a sort of a, a national endeavor uh, that, that an American soldier wrote. But if you so, if you were a cadet at West Point, you never read Halleck. So really, they these men are going into these leadership positions without any substantial uh, theoretical training or background in how to fight a, a major war. Something. American a historian did, named Morrison a number of years ago did a close study of the curriculum up at West Point in the uh, years leading up to the Civil War, and one of the things he discovered was that the one place that you would learn something about the higher art of war, in other words, how to do more than simply lead a a company, Mm -hmm. uh, was in one course that you took uh, during your first class year, your senior year. You took it in the spring semester, and the, the time allotted to the study of the movement of armies, the supply of armies, the conduct of campaigns, only covered about oh, nine or ten lectures, depending on which year you happen to be there. Now, I want to ask you to think back to when you were a senior in undergraduate school, and, and, and it's spring semester of your senior year, and what are you thinking about? You know, pretty much everything else, except that, your that's, lessons. That's absolutely right. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you again because we have to take another short break. Uh, but that's a very good thought with spring break approaching here at ECU. Uh, we will come back and talk more with Carol Reardon, author of With a Sword in One Hand and Germany in the Other. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
think you've seen online TV before? Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Carol Reardon, author of With a Sword in One Hand and Jomini in the Other, the subtitle, The Problem of Military Thought in the Civil War North, originally delivered as a series of lectures at Penn State, the Richard Civil War Center, the Bros Lectures. In the first two segments, we talked about uh, Jomini's importance and how it may have been exaggerated by uh, historians, how, how little there really was for Americans to know what to do when a war broke out, how little training uh, West Pointers had received in the, the larger questions of strategy. In your third lecture, you change gears and talk about something Jomini uh, does not address at all, and really these theorists leave out altogether. It's one thing to move uh, uh, markers on a map to indicate where you want uh, a corps or a brigade to maneuver. It's quite another thing to deal with the human beings uh, in in real life, and you, you address this in the third lecture, the, the problem of the human factor in the Civil War. Uh, Jomini had nothing to say about this. Is that right? Uh, pretty much. Anytime something went wrong, anytime uh, there was a retreat, uh, he was never really open to talking about the men were tired, the men were thirsty, the men were scared. It was always a failure of the commander. Uh, so he really he basically looked at troops as blocks on a map or something like that. Uh, that was something that did not sit very well with the American public very early on. There was a quote, uh, a newspaper editorial I quoted at the beginning of that chapter because it made such a fantastic impact on me. It came from a uh, newspaper in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and basically what it said was, if there's one thing that our generals need to understand is that the American soldier is not part of a block on a map. It's not, our soldiers are not wooden blocks to be moved along uh, the surface of a, uh, of a planning map. Our soldiers are made out of muscle and blood, and they have families and they have hearts, and they have to be treated as men. Um, 
there was an awful lot of support for that kind of a notion. And it meant, of course, that uh, the generals were going to have to adjust to armies made up largely of volunteers who had a mind of their own, who were not always willing to accept uh, the authority of rank unless that that respect was earned. It was a different kind of a situation. So, yeah, it, it was... The American spirit uh, experienced during the Civil War offered something that Jomini's uh, books did not really um, did not really explore very much. You use the the Overland Campaign of 1864 as as a case study here, uh, in which the the human factor becomes central. The the way the armies behave, the Army of the Potomac specifically behaves. Uh, is driven by all kinds of factors other than simply what the general decides. Uh, what are some of these factors that you found that, that influence their behavior? Well, uh, well, let me back up a little bit and explain sure. that right about the time I was going to write that, I was taking a group of um, Naval Reserve officers out on a battlefield tour. Uh, we were going to do the Spotsylvania campaign. And it was at a time during the um, war in Iraq when there was an awful lot of public discussion about um, the about human factors in war, about soldiers getting exhausted and tired, and about mental health issues, and about uh, exhaustion, and about the pace of, of um, constant comment or co- constant combat, and just the impact it could have on you, both uh, mentally and physically. And it was a matter of such uh, public discussion at the time that what, what, what these naval officers wanted to talk about were the human factors in war. <laughs> and it just struck me then that the Overland Campaign offered me the ideal opportunity to uh, do a study in the Civil War that addressed some of the topics that were of very contemporary interest at, at the time. Um, Earlier in the war, most of our battles were one or two or three day affairs. You think about Gettysburg and then the armies separate and they don't really face each other in battle again for almost for nine months or so. Um, Fredericksburg, then there's about five months until you hit Chancellorsville. There's always seems to be a, a big gap between our major battles. But beginning with the Battle of the Wilderness in May of 64 and then going almost constantly and into the summer, uh, the two armies, the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia, were either fighting or marching or digging in, and sometimes all three in the same day, and there was very little downtime. Uh, The soldiers were used to having, you know, exert for a couple of days and then have a lot of recuperation time. Now, all of a sudden, they're they're at it constantly. And that was bound to create stresses and strains. Now, the Civil War uh, generation didn't really address that in any kind of way um, because they didn't have a structure. They didn't have science behind it. They They just knew that things were getting tougher. Today, soldiers talk about continuous operations or sustained operations. And today, there, is, uh, there are manuals about uh, unit cohesion and sustaining soldiers over the long haul. And now there's, there's all kinds of steps you can take and all kinds of signs you can look for to look for things like exhaustion, to look for things like uh, war weariness, to look for things like depression, to look for things like, um, well... Even things like uh, poor diets. The Civil War diet wasn't anything to 
uh, be particularly impressed by. And one thing that it was very light on were the vitamins that uh, would prevent night blindness. During these very active time periods, all of a sudden the armies are maneuvering at night. And how do you move 10,000 soldiers in a pitch dark night out in the woods where there's very little light and uh, get them to where you want them for a morning attack? I found one uh, Union soldier who was talking about a friend of his and said that he suffered from the worst case of moon eye he had ever seen. They had a name for it. They couldn't have explained the science, but they identified a problem with simply marching at night. Um, they found out the import. They, they did not understand caffeine and its impact on the human body, but they understood that if the soldiers didn't get their coffee in the morning, well, sometimes it... Uh, it played out on the battlefield. They lost their intensity. They, you, you, they, the officers would actually put it in their report. If they'd had their morning coffee, they would have responded differently. I think you, the thing you, that impressed me the most yes. was reading the reports after about six weeks when the went up on the brigade, division, and corps levels. The officers were writing, if you ask my men to do the, to, to carry out this mission back on May 4th, they could have done it. It is now June 18th. They can't do it anymore. And, and they began to understand the cost of constant combat on just the human body and the human psyche. But when you, you see it in one phrase, officer's report, yes. it's not a big deal. When you see it fairly consistently, mm-hmm. we're learning something here. No question that they, they, they were learning something that they, they did not recognize going in, you used the phrase warrior science, uh, uh, mm-hmm. which was a, a new one to me, That, it, but really made sense that people are looking at the, the biological changes. You mentioned nutrition, sleep, uh, mental health uh, th- that we study today, and, and to apply these retroactively to the Civil War soldiers does give us a new insight uh, into I, I was found that pretty interesting to. as well. This gave me a chance to use my biology background as well. Uh-huh. To realize that if you're talking about humans under stress, it's psychological, it's physiological, it, it, it's the whole, you have to look at the body in totality. And just realizing that, you know, when your heart rises to a certain degree, you start losing uh, small muscle control. When it beats even more, the large muscle groups work a little, uh, have trouble co- uh, coordinating. Um, just finding that wonderful example of realizing that Uh, just the simple action of putting that little copper percussion cap on the nipple uh, right under the hammer could be awfully complicated uh, in the heat of battle. You've lost your your small muscle control, and they ended up packaging 12 percussion caps with every 10 bullets just because they pretty much assumed a couple of them were going to get dropped in the the heat of the battle. Um, And and if you haven't trained very well, we always read about soldiers who uh, forgot to withdraw their ramrod after loading their muskets, and they'd fire their weapon, and there goes the ramrod flying over toward the enemy line. We usually wrote it off to a soldier being nervous or green or something like that. We find out that a lot of that is uh, simply they're a victim of a poor training regimen. If they've developed the muscle memory to use the ramrod correctly and pull it out and reinsert it in its housing underneath the, the, the muzzle, then that probably doesn't happen. If their trainer took shortcuts and they didn't develop the routine of loading their rifle properly, they could very easily forget a step and all of a sudden render their weapon useless by firing their ramrod like an arrow 
or toward the enemy lines. Now, it's physiology. It, it, that, that was fascinating to me because we've all read accounts of the ramrod being fired away and uh, to, to see this analysis of how how stress directly would lead to this result was, was very interesting. We have just a, three minutes left or so. I, I wanted to ask quickly about uh, the struggle between intellect and genius that we started talking about earlier. Uh, continues on after the war. There's still a contest, but uh, does the Army move in a direction of formal training because of its Civil War experience, uh, training for officers in war? war it fighting? does, but it does so uh, slowly. Uh, Emory Upton, of course, becomes known as one of the great reformers of the time period, uh, but he had help. General Sherman saw the, the utility and started doing the kinds of studies and ordering Upton to design a curriculum that became first the artillery school and then set the groundwork for what became known as the, the infantry and cavalry school. The descendant of that latter school is today's command and general staff college. Um, by World War One. You know, 50 years after the Civil War, we have uh, military schools that are available not just for West Point cadets, but for captains, and uh, the war colleges will be developed for the more senior-level officers. The Civil War will convince a lot more people of the need to focus on intellect over genius, but it won't completely stamp it out. And But it's interesting when you find the remnants of genius popping up in one commentary or another, how almost quaint they seem. The, uh, you talk about how after the, the Civil War, you also have the attention to the human factors that we just uh, talked about briefly, showing up in, in the work of European writers like uh, Ardant Dupique uh, and others, that you have a move toward uh, a romantic uh, or romanticism in, in military thinking compared to the, the rigid Enlightenment era thinking of of, uh, of Jomini. It, it, it's just a fascinating uh, series of lectures that you've presented here that really put the Civil War in this intellectual context of, uh, of worldwide military thought. Uh, and it, it's, it's a very enlightening book. Well, thank you. I tried to take a Civil War topic and extend it into intellectual history and into, uh, a glo- into a bit more of a global context. And if, you know, for those of us in the academic world, if we can push our scholarship in new and exciting directions, well, that's our, one of our goals. That's certainly what we want to do. Um, 30 seconds uh, elevator speech. Are you working on anything, uh, anything new for publication right now? Well, uh, Tom Vossler and I are, have just finished up the second edition to the Gettys field, uh, field Guide to Gettysburg. We've added a couple of new stops and a whole lot of uh, new things. And if you get the ebook version, you're going to get a whole lot more new stories and new vignettes and new leadership uh, points that were not in the first edition. Well, listeners, if you you can go back and hear uh, Tom Bossler was on the show not too long ago. We had a good talk about uh, the Gettysburg Guide. It is really an outstanding guide. I highly recommend it. Uh, as is this uh, just very stimulating book of lectures with a sword in one hand and Jomini in the other uh, by our guest tonight, Carol Reardon. Carol, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Jerry. And listeners, as always. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.